Greeny wasn't wild about the Eisenhower era foods with which Walter indulged his customers. Indulgence, she felt, was the province of dessert, but she had been pleased when she won the account. Over the past few years, she had come to think of Walter as an ally rather than a client. Except for the coconut cake, filled with Meyer lemon curd and glazed with brown sugar, most of the desserts she made for Walter were not her best or most original, but they were exemplars of their kind— portly, solid citizen desserts, puddings of rice, bread, and noodles, sweets that the pilgrims who had scraped together their prototypes would have bartered in a Mayflower minute for Greenie's blood-orange mousse, pear ice cream, or tiny white chocolate eclairs. Walter had also commissioned a layer cake he asked her to create exclusively for him. Everybody expects one of those death-by-chocolate things on a menu like mine, but what I want is massacre by chocolate, execution by chocolate, firing squad by chocolate. So Greenie had stayed up till morning to birth a four-layer cake so dense and muscular that even Walter, who could have benched a Shetland pony, dared not lift it with a single hand. It was the sort of dessert that appalled Greenie on principle, but it also embodied a kind of uber-prosperity, flaunting the potential heft of butter, that protean substance as wondrous and essential to a pastry chef as fire had been to early man. Walter christened the cake Apocalypse Now. After it was on his menu for a week, he bet her a lobster dinner that before the year was out, Gourmet would request the recipe, putting both of them on a wider culinary map. If that came to pass, Greenie would surrender to the vagaries of fleeting fame, but right now the business ran as smoothly as she could have hoped. She had a diligent assistant and an intern who shopped, cleaned, made deliveries, and showed up on time. The amount of work they all shared felt just right to Greenie. She could not have taken an order for one more tiny eclair without enlarging the enterprise to a degree where she feared she'd begin to lose control. Alan said that what she really feared was growing up, taking her lifelong ambition and molding it into a business with a capital B. Greenie resented his condescension. If business with a capital B was the goal of growing up, what was he doing as a private psychotherapist working out of a bedroom that should have belonged to George, who slept in an alcove off their living room meant for a dining room table? This was the sort of bickering that passed too often now between them. Stubbornly, Greenie refused to back down for the sake of greater domestic harmony or to address the underlying dilemma. The overlying dilemma, that much was clear. Through the past year, as Greenie began to turn away clients, Alan was losing them. His schedule had dwindled to half-time, and the extra hours it gave him with George did not seem to console him. Two years away from forty, Alan had reached what Greenie privately conceived of as the Peggy Lee stage in life. Is that all there is? Yet only Greenie knew how dark he could become, how resistant to humor and warmth. When he was with friends, his argumentative nature was his strength, but alone with Greenie he fell prey to defensiveness and nocturnal nihilism. She had known this before they married, but she had assumed this aspect of his psyche would burn off, like cognac set aflame in a skillet. Next year they would be married ten years, and it had not. In their first years together she had loved the wakefulness they shared late at night, after sex, Alan did not tumble into sleep the way most men claim they could not resist doing. They would talk about their days, their dreams, both sleeping and waking, their notions on the fate of mankind. When it came to worldly matters, the voice of doubt would be Alan's. Mourning or raging that genocide would never end, 
that presidents would never be moral, that children would always be abducted by men who would never be caught. But he was invariably passionate, and back then Greeny saw hope in that passion. He loved Greeny expressively, eloquently, in a way she felt she had never been loved. When they had been sleeping together, or not sleeping together, nearly every night for a month, she asked, Why do you suppose we're like this? Why can't we just go to sleep like the rest of the exhausted people around us? They were lying in Alan's bed. He said, Me? I think too much. Not a good thing. Why? Why is that not good? It wears down your soul. It's like grinding your spiritual teeth. Dreaming is the healthy alternative. Even nightmares once in a while. Sometimes a nightmare is like a strong wind sweeping through a house. Greeny had noticed that every morning Alan wrote his dreams in a leather book the size of a wallet. What about me? she said. Do I think too much? Not you, he pulled her closer. With you, I can only imagine that some part of your waking soul just can't bear to see another magnificent day in the life of Greeny Duquette come to an end. That's very poetic, said Greeny, but it's malarkey. When I'm with you, he said, I love not getting to sleep. He kissed her and kissed her, and then they did fall asleep. The next day, on the phone with her mother, she said she'd met an incredible man, that she had fallen in love. Her mother teased her that it wasn't the first time, and Greeny said, yes, this was true, but she had a hunch it would be the last. When the loaves and cakes she had baked sat cooling on racks, Greeny filled the larger sink with all the pans and whisks, cups and spoons and mixing bowls. Sherwin would show up later to wash them, but Greeny wiped down the counters herself several times a day. She had made this place, a boiler room in the basement of a tenement building, into her private kingdom. Around the perimeter, the walls and cupboards were white, the countertops made of smooth steel, but the linoleum tiles that Alan had helped her lay on the floor were gladiola red. The only windows ran along the ceiling at sidewalk level, wide yet narrow, like gun ports in a bunker. Sometimes Walter would lean down, knock on a pane, and give her an upside-down grin, the Bruce right there beside him. Just below the windows, Greeny had hung her copper and stainless steel bowls in pairs. It was a joke she enjoyed. Displayed this way, they looked like pairs of great armored breasts, the warrior bosoms of Amazons of Athena, Brunhilde, and Joan of Arc. Count me in, Greeny told herself while inspecting her private battalion. Carpe diem, ladies. She addressed them as she sang, which she liked to do when she worked alone. A cassette player gave her backup from Dinah Washington, Nina Simone, Billy, and Aretha, though lately she had taken to buying musicals, so that she might belt out toward her feminine army songs like My Boy Bill, Gee, Officer Krupke, and I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. When the phone rang, she was tying up the last box of hot cross buns for Sherwin to deliver to an East Village coffee house. Happy Leap Year Day, she answered. Greeny was thrown off by the way in which the caller addressed her, for Charlotte Greenaway Duquette had an assortment of names, each of which identified the user as belonging to a particular period of her past. To relatives and friends of her parents, she would always be Charlotte, unabridged. To schoolmates and other people who had known her in the town where she grew up, she was Char. To a clique with whom she'd hung about in high school, Charlie. In college, her first roommate had taken to calling her Duke. 
Liking the tough feminist ring to this name, she had let it follow her on to cooking school and then to New York City. Within a few months of moving to the city, she met Alan, who disliked this nickname and told her so on their second date. It's too butch, and you are anything but butch, he had said, boldly touching her long, unruly hair as they walked down the street. I can tell you're strong, but you are much too agreeable to have the kind of name of a boxer or a pimp would choose. Later, as they lay awake together, he murmured her whole name aloud several times, as if to search out every pocket of air in its vowels. Well, Miss Charlotte Greenaway Duquette, I'll have to make up a name of my own. That was when, with a secret thrill, she'd become Greenie. When, looking back, she had become his bride. When it came time to name her business, her business with a little b, she was tempted to use this new name, but it still felt private then, like a love charm she should be careful not to bandy about. With more calculation than sentiment, she decided on Pastries by Miss Duquette. She opened during the craze for all things Creole, Zydeco, Margaret Mitchell. To steely New Yorkers, just about anything with a southern flair had the allure of cotillion chiffon, and Greeny liked to think of her surname as calling to mind the pink oleander, mannerly verandas, and ubiquitous angels of New Orleans, though she had grown up west of Boston. On the pale green boxes in which she packed her sweets, the name swooped from corner to corner, a flounce of curlicued purple letters trailing wisteria blossoms. People who called for her business nearly always asked for Miss Duquette, or, if word of mouth had sent them her way, Greeny. On this occasion, she picked up the phone to hear, Would this be Charlotte Duquette? pronounced by a woman who sounded as southern as Greeny was not. That's me, said Greeny, and she...